Hello, and welcome to the Learn It Podcast, a weekly conversation with global education leaders for people who are passionate about the future of learning. Our aim, to introduce you to change makers who are reimagining what students need to know, how they will learn it, and ways technology can help, or not. We look at learning in traditional settings, schools and universities, but also outside of them, after school, at home, and of course, at work. In our second series, we're looking at how schools are coping with COVID-19, including what lessons we will apply to the hopeful aim of building back better. Topics we obsess on include nimble innovations, closing equity gaps, and ways to prepare students with the mindsets and skills to thrive in what is proving to be a very uncertain world. I'm your host, reporter and author, Jenny Anderson. Back when I traveled a lot, 195 years ago, I heard a lot about Spark schools. You have to meet them, Spark people would tell me. They're doing amazing work, I heard from sources in the US and the UK and the Middle East and India. It took me a long time to catch up with Bailey Thompson Blake, chief of schools for Spark schools, but wow, I'm so glad I did. Spark is a network of 21 affordable, globally competitive independent schools in Gauteng and the Western Cape regions of South Africa. The school is unabashedly values-led, which we talk a lot about here why that matters, what it looks like, and how it impacts academic performance. A quote I loved from our first conversation, schools change communities for the better. On a recent local standardized test, Spark scholars outperformed their benchmark cohort by 31% each in math and literacy. We talk about the school's blended learning model and how they've tweaked it for their second round of remote learning. We also delve into their math curriculum based on Hong Kong math, Singapore, and South Korean standards, and the online math algorithm that encourages failure. Keep listening, it's pretty cool. It's been my entire experience throughout COVID that it's relationships that have kept parents at our schools with their scholars enrolled. It's relationships that have helped to leverage the contact that teachers and scholars could have remotely into great results. It's relationships that have allowed the organization to move in an agile way. And simply put, it's relationships that are allowing us to grieve and process the trauma even as we move forward. I was blown away that teachers received 245 hours of professional development a year. That's the same that a South African teacher would get in 12 years. Bailey and I talk about navigating COVID, about the SPARK model, and about trying to keep a private school afloat when families are facing unprecedented levels of hardship and unemployment. We discuss the importance of transparency and communication, of relationships, and the role of optimism and adaptation. She also explains some of their cool innovations, such as their drive-through tech support. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Bailey, thank you so much for taking some time to be with us. Thanks so much for having me, Jenny. Give us some context about what the challenges and opportunities are to building a network of affordable private schools in South Africa today. Well, simply put, South African education is in a severe crisis. And we know this from the latest findings in the TIM study, which showed that only 37% of South Africans Learners have acquired basic mathematical knowledge. And then a few years ago in the literacy study called Pearls, also found that 78% of grade fours could not read for meaning. So from an academic perspective, South African children are not put in a position to succeed in the South African education sector. And what's really baffling about it is that South Africa actually spends a high proportion of its GDP on education. And we also know that the vast majority of South African teachers have a tertiary degree in teaching and a high percent also have 20 or more years of teaching experience. So 
the crisis in South African education really can't be attributed to funding or to teacher experience or education. Instead, it really appears that teachers are not uh, being prepared in the education that they partake in themselves to serve South African children and their families. What is Spark's vision of the opportunity there? Our vision is South Africa leads global education, and our mission to fulfill that vision is to provide affordable, high-quality education in the form of really excellent independent schools that are affordable and that are highly accessible. And so we have created a network of schools where the total cost to educate is the same as government's total cost to educate. It's our belief that for the same amount that government spends on average per child every year, we can provide a globally competitive education that is not only academic, but also puts core values, character development, and social emotional learning at the forefront. And what is that number that the government spends and that you're charging? So at the moment, our school fees are 22,000 rand per year. And while government doesn't release a report every single year, we believe that's comparable to government's total cost to educate per child. So let's talk about Spark Schools. They are unapologetically values-led. Why put that at the center? And what are they? We believe that values are the difference maker. Even though we're committed to globally competitive results from an academic perspective, it's our belief that what's going to equip Spark Scholars, which is what we call our students, to be really effective in terms of pursuing a university degree and a career of their choice is their core values and their character development. Our five core values at Spark spell out the letters of Spark, so service, persistence, achievement, responsibility, and kindness. And then each of our schools has a unique sixth core value that the founding principal of each school decides upon before the school opens. So tell me a little bit about each of those. What do they look like in practice? Really, it starts in pre-service professional development, and that's the two weeks every school year where we have the opportunity to provide training to our staff before our scholars begin. And that's when we do activities where staff co-create and commit to the behaviors that they would like to see in the staff culture at their school. We do similar exercises with our scholars when they begin class and really believe in a classroom constitution of sorts where everybody understands what they have a right to and what they have a responsibility to. And I think the power is truly in the monitoring throughout the course of the year so that these values are alive, they're observable, they are fully demonstrative in all of our schools. And even as we coach school leaders, we are asking them as we walk into any classroom or any learning space or any common area, based on what you see here, what would you say the values of this space are and how is that different to what we encourage at Spark? Let's talk about maybe some specific examples. What does service at one school look like? When our scholars recite the daily creed, they say, I serve my classmates, community, and country. And what that helps us to do is establish that service can be in small things in the classrooms. It can be in helping a peer who's struggling, but equally it means participating in service projects that are linked to that school's sixth core value. For example, Spark Bramley, whose sixth core value is compassion, last year did a sock drive in the middle of winter 
in order to make a donation to homeless people who live in the area of the school. And we truly believe that service is an empowering value. Though many of our scholars come from underserved communities themselves, they have the opportunity and the power and the ability to serve others. And particularly in the pandemic, that's been hugely empowering for our scholars and their families. In terms of persistence, we focus a lot with our scholars on trying and trying again and trying their best. And when we couple that with achievement, it means that we're not just celebrating ultimate outcome on assessments, but also progress toward a goal. It's really practical for us. We even have STMath, which is one of the online learning programs in our learning lab, which encourages scholars through its algorithms to fail a certain amount of times before they succeed. So building up this muscle of grit is hugely important and and we've used it to select our online learning programs and parts of our curriculum. How does it encourage you to fail? This program sounds like it would drive you bananas. It has no verbal instructions. So when a game comes up on the screen, it takes a certain amount of clicking around to figure out the object of the game. Perhaps it's frustrating immediately, but we find that kids are actually quite excited to first of all figure out what the puzzle's asking them and then secondly actually solve the puzzle. What is academic excellence defined by? We look at local comparison to the South African national curriculum, as well as having selected international curriculum so that our scholars are meeting local standards and exceeding them. One really exciting piece of news I can share is that our scholars at Spark Soweto took a locally comparative benchmark last November against South African national standards. And they outperformed their benchmark cohort by 31% each in math and in literacy. So it's our goal to have a CAPS Plus curriculum. CAPS is a South African national curriculum. And what we mean by CAPS Plus is meeting local standards and then exceeding them to meet written standards in literacy and to meet the standards of our math curriculum, which is based on Singapore, Hong Kong, and South Korea. So it's a really international curriculum, clearly based on what you have to do in South Africa, but also, if I'm hearing you correctly, looking to best practice. Absolutely. We're seeking out rigor. I really can't speak highly enough of our learning model team centrally, who are always looking out for best practices internationally and leading practice. So take me through the R and the K. We're almost there. So R is for responsibility, and it's about being responsible for one's own actions. This is where we integrate a lot of the tools of our social emotional toolbox, and that helps our scholars to succeed in terms of conflict resolution, building relationships with their peers. But beyond that, we're looking for this to be applicable outside of school as well. So what is it that they can take into their homes and do with their families that demonstrates responsibility? And during the pandemic last year, we had parents posting on our social media pages about their children taking initiative to wash dishes or prepare a meal. So it's not super sexy, but it is just about building all around character, not just character at school. And then kindness. I treat everyone around me with kindness. And as part of our social emotional toolbox, we focus on kindness to self and kindness to others. So this is everything from giving other people personal space and recognizing that I have access to personal space as well and a right to my personal space, as well as being able to use mindful breathing, which we do every morning to calm and focus. And then finally, it's really about the fundamentals of friendship and 
teaching our children what it means to be kind to one another and that that should go into their homes and their communities as well. Tell us a little bit about Spark Flies. Sparks Fly is our daily morning assembly. It starts with our daily creed, which we say is our daily promise. And as scholars and staff recite it together, they go through each of the five core values. And then their school's sixth core value, it has physical motions to the creed so that it's easy to remember, especially for our English language learners. And that leads into a core value song, which is a popular song that we choose on a monthly basis. And the lyrics should resonate with scholars so that if they hear it in the car on the radio, it's as easy for them to make the connection with the core values as the actual academic language that we use. So for example, Never Say Never by Justin Bieber could be a persistence core value song. I can tell you those get stuck in your head very, very quickly. And then we do a silly dance and it becomes like a club scene in some of our schools. It's a super fun time and it's a choreographed dance and it honestly feels like everyone gets into it. It's as much about waking up all the teachers as it is about waking up the scholars. And then we end with mindful breathing and we call it our breathing tool. And it's just a few minutes of mindful breathing to prepare to enter the school for the school day, a moment to move into education, to take it seriously for the day, to head into class in the right mindset, and for everyone to have spent the time together. And once a week, we celebrate core values by doing a raffle drawing of core value tickets where scholars have earned tickets all week long for demonstrating the core values and get a chance once a week to earn a very small prize like a pencil for their efforts. This sounds so exciting and engaging, but I imagine that day after day after day, it's just what everybody does. So how do you maintain the excitement or do you not need to? My favorite quote to do with school operations is there's no magic in magic. It's all in the details. And that's from Walt Disney. And we use that with school leaders to tackle exactly what you're asking, which is how do you ensure that a routine is as enthusiastic, as exciting every single day. And it's really about everyone who's participating, understanding and committing to showing up in a certain way. Who is leading Sparks Fly and what is their tone of voice every single morning to get the energy flowing? And for teachers and other members of staff who are spread throughout our scholars, what are they doing in terms of participating that is the example for our scholars? I think it's a constant effort every day. It has to be absolutely deliberate, but we put a lot of time into planning these things in the quarter before school begins every year so that we can ride on the details that we've planned rather than how you wake up in the morning and what that may make you feel like. You all do 245 hours of professional development a year. That's what a state school teacher gets in 12 years in South Africa. Talk us through how that differentiates your model and what you're doing in those 245 hours that you feel is helping your teachers. First of all, we believe professional development is a powerful culture building opportunity. It helps us to train the practices that are sparky that we'd like to see in every learning space in our schools. But secondly, we believe that teachers are professionals and that professionals are owed great development. We know that if they were doctors or lawyers, 
they would constantly be required to keep up their skills and to understand leading practice. And so we try to establish that in our professional development as well. There is a whole need for training in behavior management, classroom culture, routines and procedures. There's also content-specific professional development, which can be differentiated by grade level and often has to do with introducing new tools or curriculum or honing our practices in terms of guided practice and differentiation. So it's truly about meeting the moment and understanding where the need is. And professional development in our schools is informed by observation and feedback that's taking place in every classroom every week. I'm curious whether anything around your philosophy of professional development or your approach to it has changed or evolved significantly in the past eight years. We've really just done a massive overhaul of our pre-service professional development to provide for much higher levels of differentiation. We were providing, for example, in a school, the same session every week to every person. And what we've done is to equip and empower school leaders to also have highly successful teachers and veteran teachers hosting smaller group sessions and found that teachers said it fit their needs more. We also have the benefit of working with Teach Like a Champion online, which is where we can have teachers to log in and watch exemplar videos from schools across the world, submit their own example videos for review. So I'd say both format and tools have evolved over time. How do you view parents? And again, sort of take me through the journey. How do you hope to communicate with them and interact with them? And how has that changed? We see parents as partners. We think that our relationship with them is absolutely essential to their child's success. I think the evolution has been in not only providing support to parents for the benefit of their child, but starting to think about how we could have a holistic impact in terms of what a parent or a family say to us that they need overall. Can we help parents in terms of their own personal financial counseling? Can we direct them to a resource there? Can we not only partner with parents to provide therapy services to scholars, but also open up those opportunities for other siblings in the family or to parents themselves? The work that we do with parents is probably the heart of what we do at Spark. I see the total commitment from our parents, the desire to support their children academically, but also the aspirations they have for them for their futures. And it actually makes me really emotional. And I think that the best thing that we can do is to have open and honest lines of communication and for parents to feel like the school cares as deeply about their children as we know they do. So it's an emphasis for us all the time. And it's not just about parent representative bodies, though we do have those. It's about individual relationships with every family whose child attends Spark. What is it about that that is emotional for you? When I think about the commitment and partnership of our parents, it's clear to me that we're part of, in biblical terms, like a great cloud of witnesses and everybody is doing the work together. It's truly a movement. So Yes, we see the commitment and love that every parent has for their child, but we've also seen their commitment to the movement that Spark wants to build. So South Africa leads global education, and I think you can only be optimistic when you witness that. We want parents to be the leaders in this movement with us providing whatever means or ability is needed 
for them to really revolutionize South African education. Is there a downside to all of that engagement, honestly, because I have heard many educators say, you, you know, of course you want them. Of course, there are partners. And then they get in the room and they do have a lot of energy and a lot of opinions. How do you also contain it and use it constructively? I don't want it to turn off the spigot. What I want to do is ensure that every family feels that they are heard in their child's school with their child's teacher. And I think by going to social media or even by directing frustrations centrally, that intimate relationship can be lost. But what we can do is channel the energy into individual relationships between educators or schools or school leaders and families so that ultimately when we have resolved their technical query, which is normally what it is, we use that as a foundation, the springboard for really rich conversations about academic progress or social emotional learning or concerns at home or concerns at school or celebrations. And so I just don't want to shut the door because in that moment, it's frustration that's being vented because I really believe that once that is resolved, it is the money in the bank to deposit into a positive and productive relationship. You had a blended learning model before COVID. How did it fare in COVID? Blended learning as a model in a brick and mortar school doesn't necessarily equate to perfectly successful remote learning online. And I think that's a distinction that we learned in spades last year. And that has driven our desire to improve our service to families as we start the new instructional year, which in South Africa begins in January. So we're in the midst of starting again, starting again in remote learning and wanting to improve the quality of that learning offering for our families, both in terms of ease of use, as well as the service itself within remote learning. What we had on our side was a great portfolio of online learning programs and most importantly, a hugely willing team to deliver great lessons, excellent instruction to our kids while they were at home. Where we are focusing our time is ensuring accessibility. So understanding what families have at home in terms of infrastructure, and then also helping with the challenges of technical literacy, which are real, which is that when scholars log into our online learning programs at school, they have a blended learning facilitator assisting them. And nobody would blame any parent for not being a blended learning facilitator themselves. So it's about equipping and educating parents on these sort of technical and logistical pieces that we take care of at school, but that we're going to ask them to take care of at home to get their child from offline to online. And how are you looking to support that? What does that look like? We have been having virtual parent community meetings. We've been setting up WhatsApp groups, which are sort of community chat groups. We have these really cool drive-through services available for families if they wish to come and stay in their car, but explain their concern to us through the window from the COVID perspective. We are calling families actively. We, of course, have the normal things like email, 
Um, but we're really just trying to create as many touch points as possible. And one of the great strengths we've seen is that when our class parents, who are these parent representatives in schools, master the technique themselves, we find a lot of other parents come to them because they see them as pillars in the community. What's better now in your remote learning offering? On the offline front, last year, the home learning packs we provided were mainly independent practice activities. And many of our parents told us they wanted to be able to actually actively teach new concepts to their children. So what we've provided this year is self-study material so that we actually introduce new concepts as well as have independent practice in those packs. And then additionally, we've arranged for weekly feedback in those packs or the option to opt for a phone call or a WhatsApp call to provide feedback in real time. On the online remote learning, the main change was at the request of our parents to move from asynchronous video recorded lessons to synchronous lessons, live lessons. And we're also hoping to introduce small group tutoring as scholars would normally have access to in the learning lab if they were at school. We want to supplement live lessons with smaller group guided sessions for them. I'd say in addition, we've tried to create a more accessible and easier experience for users. So this year we've brought on Clever as the platform through which all of our online learning programs can be accessed so that it's not the case that parents are being asked to go to multiple websites for logging in, but they have one login to Clever and that allows their child to access any of our online learning programs using a single sign-on through Google. So it's, it's about the content of the offerings, but it's also about the format and logistics of the offerings. You and I have talked about how unemployment in South Africa has been shellacked. I mean, it was already bad and it's just gotten much worse in the range of say 30 to 40%. Let's just quickly talk about how you as a fee-paying school are gonna manage this. It's the really hard tightrope to walk as an education business seeking to show compassion and consideration and also to ensure that we can keep all of our schools open so that we can keep serving all of our scholars and their families. Many of our families have been incredibly hard hit. If they haven't had a salary decrease, they have had the loss of a job or more than one job in their household. It's our hope that we can have a level of transparency and predictability with families through the relationships that we spoke about earlier so that we can have really honest conversations with families to say, when might you be able to make a promise to pay? What would a payment plan look like that would work for your family and work for Spark? And then in some cases, we have been able to grant scholarships through the Ignite Education Fund for families with demonstrated need so that we can try to maintain as much enrollment as possible. And one thing you told me was you're training your teachers to have conversations with families about money. How are you training them and what's the goal there? Our finance team and our accounts team sit in our central office, which is called Spark Support. And for our families, it's a little too sterile. They feel more comfortable having conversations, even sensitive conversations with the people who they feel care most about their child which are our teachers and 
in this case, really our school leaders who we're training to have sensitive conversations about the status of each family's account and our collections rates. Throughout COVID, we've been very clear and transparent with families that we need to meet a certain collection rate in order to ensure that we can pay our teachers' salaries and have great facilities where their children can have a healthy and safe schooling experience. So with our school leaders, we're providing dedicated training with our finance and accounts team on how to have these conversations. Sometimes it means providing some wording, some templates that make it easier to sort of broach the conversation and that can lead to a deeper and more intimate discussion about what are the circumstances that have brought families here and where can we go together. One thing I didn't ask about is COVID learning loss. As the school year ended last year, could you see where kids were and what did you observe? So we looked at our year-end assessments and compared them against our 2019 year-end assessments. And we are very excited to have only seen a difference of a couple of percentage points in each of our core subjects in terms of difference in amount of children who mastered in that subject, according to our own internal assessments. And then, as I said, on the benchmark that our children at Spark Soweto took, which was a pilot benchmark, they outperformed their peers by 31% in each of those subjects. So we did not see the massive learning loss that was predicted. And I think that's only attributed to the incredibly hard work of our teachers and school leaders. I mean, I just can't say enough about the lengths that they went to to make sure that what seemed inevitable was completely within our control. They never accepted the narrative that learning loss was an inevitability. And we are going to drive for the same results this year. You said something very interesting at the beginning of this podcast, which is South Africa commits a lot of money. Teachers are very well trained. So what is the reason that South Africa isn't excelling more on this front? My working hypothesis is that it has to do with standards of excellence and belief in the potential of every child. Every single year, we have seen a decrease in the matric results, which are the high school leaving exam results. And for several years in a row, we have seen the announcement of those results come with an announcement that the standard to pass was going to be lowered in order to artificially increase the percentage of children passing the assessment every year. It's the opposite direction that we need to be moving in. And it begins with instilling a sense in every educator that their responsibility is to ensure that every child succeeds and succeeds at a high level because the capability and potential of South African children is wasted in a system that doesn't believe it's worthwhile to hold them to high standards. Big learnings from COVID. What did you learn that you didn't expect to learn? What do you take away from all this? Communication matters. That begins with really robust feedback loops within the organization to say what is working on the ground, what needs improvement, what resources do we need to provide. The second thing that I would say that I learned was optimism and adaptability are change makers. It's exceptionally important for us to believe in our ability to continuously improve the situation, our power and control. And then to be willing to shift and to fail, reiterate, fail again, 
reiterate, and then finally succeed. And I know it's becoming a bit of a broken record, but relationships matter so much. It's undeniable. It's been my entire experience throughout COVID that it's relationships that have kept parents at our schools with their scholars enrolled. It's relationships that have helped to leverage the contact that teachers and scholars could have remotely into great results. It's relationships that have allowed the organization to move in an agile way. And simply put, it's relationships that are allowing us to grieve and process the trauma even as we move forward. Okay, some fun questions. Favorite book about learning? At the moment, it is actually The Wisdom of Teams by Katzenbach and Smith. And I know that's not strictly about education necessarily, but um, it's a real classic when it comes to the team dynamics that lead to success. And that's what we need at Spark to serve our families well. Well, you might have just preempted my next question, which is your favorite book, not about learning. Well, my favorite book ever is The Book of Embraces by Eduardo Galeano. I love that book. It breaks your heart and then knits it back together sentences at a time. And what are you binge watching? I'm really sorry to say that we are re-watching all of New Girl from season one in my household. Bailey, thank you so much for your time, your insights, and your commitment to kids. Thanks for everything, Jenny. Where to start on this one? I love Sparks Fly, the daily morning meeting that has singing and dancing. A club scene, Bailey said but one that also incorporates mindfulness and is deeply rooted in embedding Sparks values. I think it's so smart that they prepare for this a semester ahead of time and don't leave it to how they feel on any particular morning. I've written down Bailey's Disney quote, there's no magic in magic, it's all in the details. It's so true. I love that Bailey gets emotional thinking about how to build relationships with families and is helping train her teachers in how to have tricky financial conversations because families feel safer talking to, as Bailey said, the people who love their children, i.e. teachers. I was impressed by the constant iteration and improvement, including how they've differentiated professional development, thinking about what individual teachers actually need, not just what the school needs to get from the teachers. I was impressed by all the tweaks to their blended learning model to make it work for families in person and at home, even though for now, they are all home. And I'm haunted by the stats Bailey cited at the start of our conversation. According to Pearl's, 78% of grade four South African students could not read for meaning. That is a failing of epic proportions, which Spark is clearly trying to remedy through its motto, South Africa leads global education. Thanks for listening. We'll link to the items mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it. And you can find out more about our community of global education leaders and upcoming meetups by joining our mailing list at learnit.world. In the meantime, stay safe, stay curious, and see you next week.